Hey there, it's Malika Bilal, host of The Take. We're bringing you a story today that we've been working on pre-coronavirus. It's hard to tear ourselves away from the headlines right now, but there's so much else happening in the world. And this story is an important one. Today, as the Philippines tops the list of most people arrested for violating quarantine, President Rodrigo Duterte's war on drugs continues. Here's our story. The last time Lea Bormeo went to the Philippines, she spent a lot of time in Manila's darker corners. It's morgues, it's graveyards, it's slums. You know it's a slum because all the streets are so narrow, you can't even fit your camera and your camera people through, and you're kind of winding around and all of these places, and people then tell you that this is where the gunmen chase people. And this is where people get shot, and this is where, this is how, you know, and, and you know, you, you can get lost in these alleyways, in these little arteries. Leia's documentary, which is set to air soon on Al Jazeera, is called The Mortician of Manila. And as the name suggests, it's all about death. It follows an undertaker who runs a 24-hour funeral service um, within Manila. His name is Orly Fernandez, and his business began booming in 2016 when Duterte became president of the Philippines and immediately declared open season on anyone involved in the drug trade. Hitler massacred three million Jews. Now, there is three million, there's a three million drug addict. I'd be happy to slaughter them. Vigilantes across the Philippines answered Duterte's call for extrajudicial killings, those are executions committed outside of the law. Police began shooting suspected drug dealers and users who they say resisted arrest. Rights groups report more than 20,000 people have been killed in the past three years. And Duterte says that number will keep rising until all drugs are off the streets. But at what cost? Today on The Take, we're looking at Duterte's war on drugs, through the eyes of ordinary Filipinos, it affects. An undertaker who supports the policy and a family it's torn apart. So it was 2018, two years after Duterte declared the war on drugs in the Philippines. Leia was in London, watching it all unfold. And she decided to report on this harrowing story through the mortician Orly's eyes. It seemed like an unusual choice. So when I sat with her, that was the first thing I asked about. Can you describe the main character of your film for us? <laughs> he's, he's a character. Oh, man. So my, my first encounter with him um, was via Instagram. Um, I, I came up with this idea um, to to say, well, you know, who who's the person who's going to be going? Yeah, I seen it all. I seen it all. And I thought it's got to be the Undertaker. Stabbing, stabbing, 
Oh, it's got to oh, be the guy or the girl um, who takes in all the bodies and sees all the stories. It's not a journalist chasing a story. It's not a family because they're too overwrought with grief. It's just somebody who's looking at it as, as, you know, another day, another dollar. No one else had really done it this way. So Leia flew to Manila to do it that way. She and her crew spent Christmas in Orly's morgue with its stark white walls and its hospital lighting. They were there for weeks, watching Orly's team collect and clean roughly half a dozen bodies a night. And while Orly acknowledges that the work is rooted in grief, that aspect of it doesn't seem to bother him. Even if my job is sad, when I see dead bodies and their families are crying, there's no denying it's sad. But this work fulfills me. I choose this work and it brings me happiness. People are dying, but business is growing. And Orly agrees with Duterte's reasoning, too. I think what Duterte is implementing with his war on drugs is right. Because if there's no president like that in power, Shabu will continue to spread. Shabu is the local word for methamphetamines, or meth. The Philippines has one of the highest rates of meth use in Asia, and Orly believes there is only one way to change that. That's why the addicts should be gone, cult. Even if it hurts for the parents and siblings to accept, the time has come to eliminate drugs, and you can't avoid it. It's not a perspective we see often in the international media, but it is one that's very popular in the Philippines and has been for decades. In 1988, the Supreme Court said in a Shabu-related ruling that, quote, drug addicts become useless, if not dangerous, members of society, end quote. Eighty percent of Filipinos, like Orly, support Duterte, despite or maybe because of his radical drug policy. Of course, people who have lost loved ones, parents, or siblings see things differently. Leia told me her team met many mourning families during their reporting. Most refused to be a part of the project. We went to one wake slash slash funeral where, you know, we were told on no, under no uncertain terms to get get out because they were scared. They didn't want any kind of comeback or any retaliation. And a family, you know, was was up for it at one point. And then we went and met them. And then they 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 said, no, I'm sorry, we can't do this now because we're really scared. Uh, and so that happened quite a lot. But one woman, named Angelita, agreed to be part of the documentary. Her son's body had just been found, dumped on a street. Her grief was raw, but she talked to Leia let the team film her and witness her story. Angelita kind of just came to us and we didn't expect her to. You know, this was a day when I think we were debating about what time to go for lunch and we suddenly heard, as happens at, at Orly's place fairly often, some unexpected commotion. And it was like, whoa, there's commotion, there's people here. So we know we, we, we got inside the cold box in, in the morgue and uh, started filming. And, you know, as we started filming, you know, these bodies started coming in, and other bodies started coming in. And then 
This woman comes in with two children. And then, you know, you see what you see in the film. And it all happens, you know, what you see there happens. There's no fancy cuts here. There's no restaging. And that's, that's right down to her breakdown, right down to the crying, right down to everything that's so raw about that. In her mind, this was another way of helping. You know, this was another way that we could help her with her son. And as she told us off camera, and I think on camera a couple of times too, it's like she'd already lost the thing most precious to her. So what is it if, you know, she loses something else? What is it if she loses her own life? What is it, what is it if she loses her liberty or anything like that? Um, you know, she, she's lost everything already by losing her son. People here tell me if I hadn't bailed him out of prison, he'd still be alive. Now it's as if it's my fault. There's nothing I can do. Does she know who killed her son? <laughs> People say it's the police, and so she believes it. Mm. She doesn't know specifically who did. You know, she's still very much living in fear, but also without fear, if, if you know what I mean. In the sense that she's still out there and she's still talking, regardless of what's going to happen to her and what or what can happen to her. So this is this is a very, very extraordinary woman with, you know, resilience and strength that I have never seen before. Is she representative, do you think, of the people that we're seeing dying in this war on drugs? In that she is socially excluded and very poor, yes. You know, she is representative um, economically and socially of, of, the, of the people who are being targeted, um, I would posit, within this war on drugs, yeah. You don't really tend to see the rich caught up in this. If you look at the statistics of actually who is dying uh, and, and who comes through the morgues, um, they are the poor. They are the rickshaw drivers. They are the ones who are forgotten. Leia's not the only one who says Duterte's war on drugs is actually a war on the poor. It is the poor who are always the victims of the war on drugs. I haven't really heard any story uh, of a rich pusher or a middle-class pusher that's being killed. The big problem here in the Philippines is classism and the fact that as long as it is poor people uh, who are being killed, then nobody really seems to care. As a Filipino who was born into a certain type of privilege within the Philippines in a gated community, which is relatively safe, uh, I know that I could acquire and I could get hold of drugs in those rich villages. I know that the types of drugs I'd be able to acquire would be different. They would be marijuana, it'd be cocaine. Um, the types of drugs that you'd be able to acquire uh, if you lived in the shanty town or in, in one of the poorer neighborhoods would be crystal meth and shabu because that's what you could afford, that's what you could get. And the people who will be using it, for instance, you know, your rickshaw drivers, 
the ones running the, running the motorcycles, um, ferrying people around, they use it kind of like as another way of getting a couple of extra hours of work out of the day so that you know their appetite is suppressed, they don't have to eat, they can work a few more hours, and they can bring a few more pesos in um, and, and get some more rice on the table for their families and for themselves. And so for them, four extra hours of work is the difference between getting another meal on the table or not, or being able to treat your kids to a can of Coca-Cola or not. So I don't think it's necessarily more or less sort of prevalent uh, depending on the socioeconomic class you're in. It's your your needs, you know, your your reasons for using it are definitely different. But the only the only the issue here is that the poor are being targeted and being killed for it, whereas the rich in the Philippines are not. Where can the families, many of whom you met, turn to for justice? Uh, is there anyone holding police accountable for these extrajudicial killings? Is anyone holding Duterte accountable for what this war on drugs has evolved into or what it has meant for people like the families you met? I mean, there it's about information. The groups are there. There's a group called FLAG, the Free Legal Assistance Group, um, that, that, that offers and, and, and gives families uh, legal assistance to try to you know, get some justice back. There are churches like Baclaran Church and, and other places um, that will give you some financial assistance uh, towards the funeral of your family. And also they'll help you in, in sort of pastoral care um, and in, in, in the sense of, you know, looking after you spiritually and emotionally. So those groups are there. And Amnesty International obviously has, has, a, has not obviously, but has recently sort of released a report about it. The United Nations releases reports about it. You know, there's a lot of international attention, uh, a lot of NGO attention um, focusing on this. But ultimately, those organizations and their numerous reports don't seem to have much sway on the ground. Duterte has dismissed their concerns, sometimes very aggressively. His government has also cracked down on local media, like Maria Reza's now famous website, The Rappler, which means a lot of the once vocal opposition has been nearly silenced. The majority of the people who are being targeted and who are at the other end of the crosshairs um, have no voice. And oddly enough, they're the ones who voted for Duterte. There's this interesting moment in the dock where the woman um, that you're featuring, you know, she's crying. She's she's almost inconsolable, and she says, I voted for him. I voted for Duterte. What were you thinking in that moment? When I asked her the question, because I knew it was pretty likely that she had, and... So she said that the reason she voted for him was because he, everybody else was talking about how great he was and how, look at this guy, he's a big guy, he's a strong guy, he can, he can fix things, he can make things better. And she voted for him. But not necessarily because she believed that her life would get better, but because she had no connection to any of the other people who were running. So, yeah, she went for this guy. And so when she said that, you know, it was, yeah, yeah, it was hard. It was really, really hard to mm-hmm. to stomach this. 
I wanted to talk a little bit about your personal connection to this story. What drew you to it? That uh, you know, I'm I'm Filipino. I was born there. Um, laundered through Chicago and North America, um, and now live in London. And you know, I very much have um, a certain kind of privilege, and I haven't really been able to square that. And I haven't really been able to square my personal, my sort of Filipino identity. But then a lot of events sort of happened um, to me that made me reflect on who I am and who I was. This included the the the, the death of my mother and um, losing a child. And so after sort of two very major hits involving loss, I was already in a kind of dark headspace. And I thought, you know, I was... I've always, always wanted to make something and do something that involved my roots and just never found the right thing. And this time I just sort of went, actually, this is it. Uh, this, this will give you a deep dive into who you are, who, you know, your mother was and who your potential daughter, you know, should have been. I, I think a different me at a different time would have been a little bit more distant. Uh, this time I chose to be fairly upfront and fairly close up. So that was reflected in the lenses we chose to use. Like, you know, 50 millimeters mostly for, because that's what the human eye tends to see. So if we wanted to see something closer, we walked closer to it. If we wanted to move away, we walked further away. We weren't going to use any sort of technological cheats um, if we could help it, because we wanted to make it as human and as direct as possible. The documentary, I will say, was um, reading it as one thing and even seeing pictures as one thing, but seeing the bodies on film in front of you, you know, coming face to face to that is a whole other thing. So um, I can't imagine what it was like to be there in the room, to be you, to be Orly, to be your team. So I was, I was doing a little bad bit of kind of proxy parenting because one of the one of the members of crew is a is 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 a nephew of mine who was in films uh, in film school and uh, and I said, "Are you ready for this?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, sure." And I said, oh, "Really?" And he nearly quit after day two. And then he, oh, wow. And I, you know, you- I. I yeah. Were you ready for that? Were, were you prepared for the toll? Did it take an emotional toll on you? I don't think... I think you'd be lying as a journalist if you were, you were going to go into a situation like this or any conflict situation or any situation that involves PTSD um, to say, yeah, I'm totally ready. You're never ready for anything like this. But it's something that you park and that's something that you do because you do believe that if it's not going to be done with your assistance, then who else is going to do it? And how else is it going to be told? Leah, thank thank you so much for this conversation. It's a heavy one um, and it's a heavy film, to say the least, but it's an important one. And I appreciate you taking the time. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilvey with Alexandra Locke 
Dina Kispe, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Keep an eye out for Leia Borromeo's film, The Mortician of Manila, set to air soon on Witness, one of Al Jazeera's leading documentary shows. We'll be back.